Hey, I'm here with Dr. Ariel Schwartz, my mentor. So this is a very special Fox Den podcast. Thanks for coming on, Doctor. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. It's of, great, to, great to be here with you. Of course. Um, I can't believe it. I've known you. I've been working with you in some capacity since, since 2018, mm -hmm. because that's when you signed my book, your, your, your great EMDR book with Barb, the EMDR Therapy and Somatic Psychology, which such such a necessary branch in trauma therapy somatic work i mean and you've got a new book out uh which we'll talk about the practical guide to call a practical guide to complex ptsd it's absolutely awesome so i wanted to open it up and really hear from you what you wanted to get out there today i know i sent you a few questions online and if you want to dive into those if you want to if whatever you want to talk about i'm really game for I'm, I'm really happy to, um, to talk about your questions. And okay. I think I'd love to keep our talk relevant to what's happening in our world today. And Absolutely. I thought the same thing after I sent that. I was like, oh, we could really make this relevant now. So yes, sounds great. And, yeah. And, I, and it's so interesting. I mean, I'll, I'll share one of my own realizations that came about through um, everything that's been coming. So, you know, just to contextualize for our, for our viewers, this is July 3rd, 2020, and yeah. we are still in a version of um, shelter in place, even though there's, there's some premature, and I'm going to call it premature opening, um, happening in the U.S. right now that has led to huge surges in, in uh, COVID. And we're also simultaneously inside of the, um, you know, kind of this, this double intensity is what I'll call it, this double transformational intensity of what COVID has put us into simultaneously to George Floyd and the emergent awareness of systemic racism that has, it's not new, there's nothing new about this, but it has just brought forward to our consciousness how systemic this is at all levels and that even within the field of psychology, this systemic racism and white supremacy exists and that um, what, what for me personally came forth is that I've been writing about complex PTSD for years, right? And I have not thoroughly addressed the impact of ongoing I mean, I certainly addressed it. We have a whole chapter on, on cultural trauma in the EMDR and somatic psychology book. Right. You know, we've certainly addressed it, but I feel like it's still in a blind spot for me and as well as within the field of psychology to, to discuss that as a form of complex PTSD. So that's been my, my process right now is really integrating that not only into my own thinking, but into, into the book that I'm currently working on. Well, that's a good teaser. I mean, I think it's definitely necessary. You're, you're completely right that the difference between complex and ongoing trauma versus acute stress is so, is so palpable. And I, that's what I've been talking with people about is that the, the COVID lockdowns and feeling oppressed, I mean, so many different things that are chronic and people don't really have an answer to versus kind of a fight or flee thing that happens and then they kind of reset and can go back to baseline. Um, so with, with systemic racism, that issue of there not being a baseline of normals, of, of healthy treatment. And, and I, I like where you're going with that because I think it really draws some attention to some important things. Yeah, important things that have been here for so long and that, um, you know, it's, it's 
kind of like it's been banging on the door. And then with with um, COVID and with the pandemic, it it exposed the inequality at a whole nother level economically um, and who was at greater risk because of the essential jobs and you know the the nurses and the people working cleaning the hospitals yes. who were themselves at risk and their families are at risk and i'm saying it in past tense but it's current it's now it's here in texas it's here in florida um, and uh, the economic impact on those who were already um, uh, living in poverty and then um, have this on top of it. The homeless, uh, the homeless community who's impacted so severely, you know, community in jails, as well as our elderly. So a lot of the people that are living in, um, uh, in vulnerable populations already who have then been made more vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. If one good thing comes out of it, it's bringing attention to some already existent issues. I mean, absolutely. So tell us more about that. Where do you think interventions or improvements need to go? And we, we can link that also into the things that I, the, the questions I sent you, but I, I really don't want to rush any conversation you want to have on this. Yeah, I think that, um, that a huge part of it is awareness, that the more that we bring awareness to our own participation, our own reactivity, um, our our own reliance or or the benefits of privileges that we don't even realize that we have or pay attention to that 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 we recognize that that actually we have something to lose and it's worth losing because we need to recognize that that by pushing for our own gains for to keep ourselves ahead and I'm speaking as a as as a white white woman here, but to keep myself ahead, which in somehow um, puts my voice center and marginalizes or decentralizes somebody else's voice, that I want to be aware of that, right? That, uh, that, that how do we share this platform? And so even here to, to spend time in our conversation about this is to say, this is my responsibility too. It's ours. Yeah. And, um, you know, and to put that more, that, that awareness and that onus here, that for me, so much of my own practice as a somatic practitioner and reading, you know, reading my grand, grandmother's hands, this beautiful book that's out there that's bringing together polyvagal theory and, um, and somatic psychology and trauma work and intergenerational trauma work together. And this is a beautiful piece of work. And, um, and to understand how we all have that responsibility to understand what happens in my body. And here's where polyvagal comes in, right? To understand where reactivity shows up and then it's nobody else's responsibility. I'm not the victim of that reactivity. I now have to, you know, to take charge of it and to work with what happens inside of me so that I can be more available for the conversation, even if it's a hard conversation with another. I think in the world of therapy in general, it can be very difficult for people to hear how there can be improvements, especially if people feel like they're already going so far. But when it comes to on a more qualitative level, the changes to make and just being a better listener and being aware that things aren't the same for some communities there are others, I think that's a great place to go. Um, I had on an African-American psychologist a few weeks, or at this point, it's probably a few months ago, um, 
and she was talking about how just curiosity about how different communities are affected, like how African-American men are not going to, uh, let's say, respond to the same kinds of therapeutic cliches and culture that's kind of emerged in the echo chamber. Um, kind of, I say affectionately, like the live, laugh, love stuff. It doesn't always hit, like we have to adapt therapy to different populations and that, that's part of the job. And that's in, in grad school, learning about different populations and, and their unique struggles. We have to apply that into where we go. And it's so easy to get caught in a rut of a particular way of um, doing therapy. And it's so multifaceted. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. I think that um, being client centered, being, you know, culturally sensitive, um, it, it's a conversation and it's a listening to what works with the individual, what works for the individual. Um, when someone comes in, it's, you know, there, there are so many um, influences within the field of psychology. I mean, we're at a stage right now where there's over 400 different therapeutic modalities, if, you know, and that's, that's probably um, uh, a well uh, outdated number, right? You know, and so, um, but the good news about that is that therapy isn't a one size fit, fits all. Right. Yeah. Right. And while I love EMDR, and of course, that's how you and I met, and I love somatic psychology, and, and that's, that's what, you know, I speak about so much. It's not an agenda. Not, you know, I can't, we can't approach this in that way. Right. Absolutely. I, I make sure to catch. It's, it's very interesting. You, you have to catch, well, am I wanting, am I seeing these EMDR targets in this person's life and wanting to jump into that work when they're not done telling their story on a one-to-one level and, they don't, and they're not really interested or, or able to right now process that, right? I think that's a real mark of therapeutic awareness is if you can avoid seeing every, to a hammer, every problem is a nail, right? And if you can avoid going to that mode where everything is a trauma target, everything is this, everything is that. Um, EMDR works amazingly, but you have to have that rapport and not apply it as one size fits all, like you just said, yeah. Yeah, and you know, we, we need to know. The other thing, I had this conversation with a consultation group this week where we were speaking about um, an individual experiencing a discrimination in their uh, current relationship, in their current world, okay. right? experiencing ongoing chronic racism, right? Yeah. And discrimination. And so often when we're doing trauma work, we rely upon this phrase, which is it's over now, right? Like we can orient to safety here and now because the event is no longer happening. But right. when we're talking about chronic traumatization and they are not currently safe, we have this real dilemma, and one of the one of the uh, pieces that I spoke about, and this is in the EMDR and somatic psychology book in our uh, chapter on cultural trauma, is that even in the context of ongoing chronic traumatization that's that's not over, we can still build the resources to feel empowered in the here and now, and then use those resources to. Um, to reflect on how do we want to face the barriers and the obstacles that are real, that are around us here and now. 
and whether this is related to discrimination and oppression or whether this is related to COVID and the ongoing stress of that, I feel like these empowerment uh, um, techniques and these resources are really important day-to-day practice. I know for myself that I have been needing to engage in self-care like never before. Absolutely. Well, and I try to, yeah, this is a time where therapists have to walk the walk more than ever and not just talk the talk. And so it gets into this area of like going and exercising outdoors, doing things, whatever you can to, to get back to some sense of normalcy while being safe and respecting others, obviously. And I like what you just said, because it just brought me to mind of so many clients that I've worked with who, let's say, have had DV situations and not just um, like in a romantic relationship, by the way, but but. Uh, adult children who live with with their parents and um, can't afford to get out right now. And it's like there's a cultural element, like an intergenerational family, and there's abuse going on. It's like doing EMDR with someone like that can help and it recharges them. And it's all about putting uh, coping skills into the here and now that they then carry into the future. So when you said that, it resonated very strongly with me because I think anyone who's gone beyond basic EMDR training or when they get done with the basic training and the nice kind of in the training wheels environment of that basic level one and two training, you start to see it's not as always as easy as it's over now, it's done. It's not always like a fluke car accident or a mugging or something, which those are horrible, but they're sometimes a one-off compared to a lot of times our clients bring these chronic situations, that word again of chronic stress versus acute of how am I gonna build up resilience to get through this long-term and be realistic about it, but not fatalistic. And, mm-hmm. and of culture and issues of abuse and ongoing just trauma from situations people can't always just snap their fingers and get out of. Yeah. So very excellent point. And that's in your book, like the, the, your, your book, a practical guide to complex PTSD, which I'm going to put a link to in the video and the podcast is so targeted toward clusters of, of, of symptoms, right? I'm pivoting to that because it's like, you just, you just talked about building resilience. Well, that book, discusses healing invasive and intrusive symptoms. It, it breaks everything down. So whatever someone's dealing with, their healing strategies, literally the name for it, in the book. So. Yes, yes. And I'm also, I, I just was thinking, as we're speaking about this, I grabbed hold of, of this one as well, the Post-Traumatic Growth Guidebook. Oh, this and, one? Um, yeah, that one. But I wanted to read, if, if you don't mind, I would love to read a quote in here that feels so relevant to what we're yes. speaking about, um, because I think that people misunderstand resilience. And they so do. this is uh, from an area in here that called Understanding Resilience and Post-Traumatic Growth. And um, here, what I say is that, um, importantly, resilience is not the same as optimism, right? Being overly focused on positivity and happiness has its drawbacks. Sometimes trying to stay positive can override our authentic feelings and leave us feeling ashamed about the very symptoms that require compassionate and caring attention. Mm -hmm. Rather, resilience is grounded in what we call realistic optimism, which is the ability to maintain a positive outlook on life while acknowledging the challenges that will occur inevitably along the way, right? Too much 
um, realism can lead to skepticism or negativity. And that's what you're speaking to, right? Which can squash our dreams or hinder our ability to move forward. And too much optimism can result in fantasy or idealism, which can cause us to turn a blind eye to the actual barriers that are present in our lives. So in contrast, realistic optimism allows us to have the dreams while setting attainable goals about how to achieve them. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. I mean, and that's one reason that I love DBT and not to go too off on a, on a tangent, but the idea of combining like logic, emotion, you know, skepticism, mm -hmm. optimism, like the, the, the combining Holding things. Dialectics. Synthesis, dialectics. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this, you know, like the basic one, which, you know, we come back to again and again, which is that we need to focus on acceptance in order to move toward change. Yeah. I love the term radical acceptance, not just because it sounds very 90s, but because it's like yeah. the basis of DBT. It's the basis. Of, and there's so many misconceptions like, well, if I'm accepting something, doesn't that mean I approve of it? Is Doesn't that mean that, I, that things are just going to stay the same? No, it's the opposite. When you're in denial, you don't know what it is to fix. You don't know where to start. But when you accept that this right. is actually happening, you can move forward. That's exactly right. And here, what, what I think what happened for so long, if we tie this back to the systemic racism, mm -hmm. is that there has been a collective denial. People have been wearing blinders, not wanting to see. Um, and this is for centuries, right? Yes, or yeah. there has been... Um, so much oppression of the voice that's been speaking out against this, that it has allowed it to continue. And now with technology, with the use of all of these cameras that are exposing what's been happening and putting it in people's living rooms and in their hands on their phones, right? To be able to see right, so right. clearly we can no longer deny. We have to accept what's happening. Acceptance doesn't mean we're okay with it, as you just said. Right. We have to turn toward what's happening realistically in order to be able to enact change, engage what needs to happen for reform. Absolutely. And it's, it can be overwhelming for people in their worldviews to look at things and explore what their own biases are. And so I think that book, I'm, I'm going to also look into that and reference that i've heard of it the my grandmother's hands book it's it seems like an absolutely great work mm -hmm. and the fact that it is it, it gets into polyvagal theory that's just wonderful yeah um, yeah yeah he's wonderful he also has a a course on his website um it's uh because i've been i've been going through his course on his website and it's lovely okay. you know um so you know to, to um you know to really honor what's out there and who's out there and who's and who's speaking about this so his yeah, his website is the cultural somatic university and uh resma menicum and yes. um you know to to really honor what he has uh he has been uh getting into our world so uh, just grateful grateful that that he has um been out there and also some of the books that have been helpful in regards to white fragility right like looking at robin DeAngelo's book um and understanding why it's hard for white people to speak about this mm, right yes yeah his uh, his website is, is his his name so that gets it yeah. um www.resma.com so there you go 
good. Interesting stuff. I, I think it's very eye-opening for people. It would be interesting to see how graduate students are dealing with this stuff now, people who aren't even therapists yet, but are studying. Probably mm -hmm. a lot of conversations right. there. Yes, I was really, um, I was really lucky in grad school. My mentor um, and dissertation advisor and, um, uh, you know, advisor throughout my entire uh, doctoral program, her name is Dr. Nancy Hansen, and her specialization was in multicultural studies. And so I um, happened to enter into my PhD program at a time when she was doing a study on multicultural competence among uh, psychologists and members of the APA. And so I, for four years, was able to participate in this research study. And it was um, uh, very influential in my thinking at the time, and certainly still now uh, that was gosh, 12 years ago um, that we published that paper. And, but it was looking at the divide between what we know to be cultural competence strategies and behaviors and awarenesses that therapists should have, and the divide between that and what's actually happening in practice. And um, the intention of that research study was to close that divide. Wow. So were you, you a research assistant on that? Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, we'll have to, I want to find that paper now. That's great. I can send you, I can send yeah, you a copy. And it's great. been... It's uh, um, available uh, through, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll get it. I'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll that's great. It. That's really cool. The research um, and practice. Yeah. Wow, it's very relevant stuff. I mean, if there was one thing you could put out there for people to educate themselves or, or, or to, for people who are survivors of the systemic racist trauma, what do you think you would, you would put out there for either of those or both? And that's kind of a big question. It is a big question. I would say that if, um, I mean, I, I can't speak sure. on behalf of someone that has directly experienced racism themselves. I can speak on behalf of my own experience of, right. of confronting my own blind spots and a commitment to that. Right. right. That's right? more, yeah. And, um, and my own willingness, and I think that's what we want to come to the table with, is, is how can we increase willingness to have difficult conversations and to sit inside of what can feel like guilt or shame um, and tolerate that in a way that doesn't spin us into toxic shame, but actually allows us to say, gosh, I'm not proud of that, or I've been benefiting unconsciously from this, and I need to be willing to, um, to look at that and, um, and to make changes. So those are the parts that, you know, that I can speak to. Absolutely, that's awesome to hear. Just that itself, you know, it's, it, Speaking as a therapist, when you, I think there's a bias and a, a well-intentioned one, but that's not really an excuse. But I think therapists, the way they are brought through school and what we're taught and how it's kind of an atomized approach. If you pick a school of thought, then you, you use some interventions and it's 50 minutes or 51 or however, but don't go over because insurance might charge the person more. You're delivering a service you are giving coping skills and it's essentially serving kind of a priesthood function 
that isn't in society, kind of a mentorship, kind of something where it's like, well, here's what to do to get better on a psychological level, on a metaphysical level. And if therapists have to sit with something they can't fix or even offer anything remotely helpful for, that's uncomfortable. Mm. And there's an, a competency. It, it, there's a, at least for me, if you feel you can't help someone out of something, it's very difficult mm. for, the, for the, the, the healer and the client, right? And there has to be that authenticity there to say, you're right, I can't fix this right now, or you can't fix this single-handedly with a few coping skills. What does that conversation look like? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's fantastic. It's one of the things that I appreciated most about working in community mental health and that I miss most now that I've been in private practice. When I was in community mental health, we worked really closely with the um, uh, case management, right? And we worked closely with individuals that could, you know, we had the Department of Vocational Rehab down the hall. We had people that were associated with housing down the hall. Right. Um, it was yeah. so easy to access resources for, you know, the um, individuals who didn't know where to start, didn't know how to get Medicaid reinstated, or didn't know um, how to access um, food, right, and safety. So like for some of those really basic level needs, that is where I appreciated community mental health. What I didn't appreciate about it and why I didn't stay is a reason that a lot of people don't stay, which is that the, you know, mental health providers are not compensated enough. It's kind of like childcare. It's kind of like elder care that actually there is this, this um, disservice and a high burnout level in the most needed realms, right? The most needed er arenas of work. So, you know, the, the level of productivity that therapists need to meet in order to stay compliant with the demands of working within a mental health system that says that you need to have a caseload of 60 to 80 clients. I can't do the kind of service work that I wanna do for a client when I say, well, I can get you in once every three weeks. And those were the kinds of dilemmas that were happening within um, the, that system. And uh, at some point, it really backfires. We see this in, you know, in lack of access to um, psychiatric care with the degree of frequency in which people are decompensating because they're not getting seen to the, um, with the frequency that they need. Oh, what a conversation. Yeah. And I think now my, my, I was talking with an old supervisor and one, one of the issues is EMDR was kind of a big thing where I where I and it's now I mean you have to basically ask someone who wants to be a mental health specialist okay go through graduates go through college go through graduate school then go through EMDR then do all, all of these trainings and then you're really doing doing a great job I mean I can't imagine doing therapy without EMDR at this point in my tool belt but everyone can and that gets into some systemic issues of the barrier of entry financially speaking, to people who might not be able to, that, that's a whole rabbit hole that kind of connects to our conversation, but I'm right there with you. I think it's, it's unfortunate because uh, there's, it's like the same thing as with teaching or childcare, like you said, it, it immediately comes to my mind, kind of the education system of what kind of mechanisms are in place, what's expected versus the reality of what's kind of needed. So, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Right. But, um, all right, that's a bet. That is a good conversation. Let, I want to hear how you got in. This could be, you could, you could make it as short as you want, but how you got into somatic psychotherapy as your real therapeutic lens, or at least one of your main ones. Great. Um, I love that question. So, um, it's actually a very personal question. It probably ties together with some of the conversation we've had already. Uh, but I um, experienced my own childhood uh, trauma. So that's part of it. It, it wasn't a, um, you know, I don't know that we can ever compare one kind of trauma to another. So, so mine was mine, right? Uh, but what happened was that there was some domestic um, conflict uh, that occurred in my very, very early years. We're talking before the age of two. My parents separated when I was only two. Um, there was a lot of dispute. Uh, I, I have some very vague early memories of yelling and arguing, and um, I've certainly heard stories, right? So I know that all of that informed my mother's pregnancy my early attachment phase, right? Like the, the, the embodiment phase, as I like to think of it, the phase in which we start to build that sense of trust in the world from, you know, Erickson, right? Like trust, mistrust, that feeling of it's okay to come into the body and to yield and relax and to trust in relationships. Well, all of that had a, had a shaky foundation at a certain level. Now my mom loved me, my father loved me, um, they both did their best, and they struggled with each other, and all of that had an impact on me. And um, so the divorce was official by the time I was four, so again, you can imagine the upheaval. Um, they both met their next partner that same year, and so by the time I was five, I had a, a a new stepmother and a new stepfather. I had three step siblings. And so this family, and so I'll combine it with another concept here, which is the highly sensitive person, right? Mm. So as a very empathic, sensitive little one, I took this all in kind of wide eyed, like deer in the headlights. I took it all in. You can see my body language here. Yes. And it w and it was too much. It overwhelmed my circuits. I didn't have the capacity, especially not as a pre-verbal one, and certainly, you know, not as I was developing. And no one really helped me process all of this um, in those first years. And so I, I grew very overwhelmed in my system. So it showed up for me somatically. And I um, would have experiences of getting chronically sick for years up until I was about 18. I would get chronic bronchitis. I was on antibiotics twice a year. I had asthma. Um, I had um, uh, bladder and, and urinary tract challenges. I had a lot of systemic challenges in my body. By the time I was in my 20s, I experienced brain fog um, and if you're familiar with that term or if our listeners are, it is, it is debilitating and, um, and fatigue. But I also recognize that my diet consisted of a lot of sugar, a lot of dairy, a lot of wheat, right? And I hit what I would call a healing crisis, all that, that culminated around my 20s um, that also corresponded with a series of car accidents, 
And because everything showed up so somatically for me, and, you know, I mean, in the illnesses, but also I would get caught in my throat, in my chest, in my belly. I felt it all here. I, um, you know, it, it was, there were two things that gave me relief. One was yoga. And when I was in college, I had actually grown up in a family that did yoga. When my stepdad came into my family, he was practicing yoga. He brought it into our family and it was it was a wonderful early resource for me. And, and he's uh, someone that I'm still very close to, right? Um, but when I didn't practice much when I was in my, you know, teenage years. And when I went to college, I started taking yoga and I had um, pretty debilitating anxiety. And that was the place where I found relief. I also, and again, very privileged to be at a college where this opportunity presented itself, and I went to it. I went to a body-mind centering event. It was a weekend. And you've read about this probably in one of my books because I write about it in the Post-Traumatic Growth Guidebook. But I go yeah. to this body-mind centering class and you know, we, you, you're being held by another and they rock your head. Of course, like we don't do this during COVID anymore. Yeah. They held your and you know just kind of rocked your body and something broke loose inside of me and whatever compartmentalization and dissociative um, strategies I had been using to cope up until that point something opened up and it was very very painful I cried and cried and cried it really opened up a lot of wounding but it also said I like there was something where I was just like I want more of that what was that and how do I get more of that? And so it sent me on a hunt for this thing called somatic psychology, right. which at the time there were, I think three programs in the country that offered degree programs in this. And one of them was here in Boulder, um, Naropa University. And so that was how I ended up there. Changed my life, really helped me bridge the gap um, at every level. And it's why I'll, I'll tell you just one more piece to the story. And of course I could talk for the, forever yeah, on this story because it's very inspiring. Um, but but one other piece that I would say is that not only did the embodiment practices were they central and crucial, but you know the healing relationship and feeling safe with another person to go to those very kind of quarantined off places in my psyche, and then also to um, to tap into the the other lifestyle changes that i needed to commit to in order to heal um the illness right the illnesses that had kind of settled into my body so i changed my diet completely you know this didn't happen until i was um maybe 28 i i reduced sugar i stopped eating wheat i stopped eating dairy um i committed to a daily yoga practice like there were all of these pieces that i realized like in, that for me to feel balanced and grounded, I had to commit to it at a daily practice level, not just the once a week therapy. Uh, that's absolutely amazing to hear. I know yoga is such a big part of your own practice and you do some inspiring yoga conferences. I'll see on your Facebook page, you'll ally with other yoga instructors. And it, it, it's another inspiring thing that people can look at. I have so many clients who are wondering how to stay even hopeful for life now. And so immediately what comes to mind is safely exercising, safely doing something like yoga, watching an instructor like you, it doesn't have to stop just because it's, we've been inconvenienced. We can find creative ways. And sometimes we have to do that. 
-hmm. And that kind of segues into how we can maintain mental health in the wake of COVID. I mean, at this point, that's a passe question because anyone who works tangentially in the healing, helping professions has been asked that. But I think the answer has to be very authentic and it, and it kind of has to change as we're in different phases of the collective trauma. If people, yeah. can't, if people don't even feel like moving, they need to just sit with their anxiety. That's great. And as long as it doesn't turn into, you know, really uh, giving into that and, and getting outside your window of tolerance, but yeah. yoga is such a great way to stay mentally and, and physically healthy right now. Yes. Well, you named something important in there too, which is that it's a collective trauma and that, that tapping into just the words, you're not alone. You're not alone. There are other people that are experiencing the effects of this. And while on the one hand, that might feel overwhelming, on the other hand, it reduces isolation, especially at a time when we've had reduced social contact. And to tap in to some form of community or group um, gatherings where there is a chance to feel connected to other people. Um, I, I ran a few weeks ago and I'm going to run this again on, um, I don't know when, when this comes out, um, but I'm running it again here on July 21st. And uh, I'll probably run another one in August because the, um, it's just been a really powerful process. But a few weeks ago, I ran what I called a community gathering, which um, just had people come together in a webinar format and just share a little bit about what is it like um, going through this collectively and then guiding um, us through some somatic practices and um, some mindset practices to help us feel more connected and um, oriented toward the healing process that's available even during this time and necessary for sure during this time. But that feeling of connecting with other people in a mindset of intentional healing is profound. It absolutely is. And I'll be, I hope to share that in the coming weeks. That's great. I'll, I'll share that online um, because people are definitely looking for answers. So I want to give a few minutes here to ask you, who would you have a conversation with? Which three people living or dead or any combination of it? I like oh, to ask that question. It's kind of my foxed in trademark. I got it from another podcast that was more philosophy based, but mm -hmm. I think it's a good question because it's kind of like a Rorschach test of people's, you know, interests. Hmm. What a rich question. It's also a challenging question. Um, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm pausing because I'm really trying to hold this question in yeah. the middle of this of current conversation, right? That's, like, yeah, that's kind of the, you know, and that, and I don't think it's just the, the, the kind of Rorschach of, of an individual, but it's a Rorschach of the individual in the context of the current climate, right? Yeah. And ego. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so I would say that, you know, if I could go back in time and sit with Nelson Mandela and understand his capacity for um, forgiveness. Uh, that would be a pretty amazing conversation. I would love to have a conversation with, um, uh, with Alice Walker. And, um, you know, and just sit and hear like, I, it brings tears to my eyes, especially because her books have been just really um, powerful and meaningful. Uh, 
Um, and I remember this actually was just the, the, the movie version, which I don't even think captured the book. But when I was in high school and I had watched The Color Purple, yes. and that broke me down to like it took me to my knees. I sobbed like I had never cried before in any movie that I had ever watched. And there was something about really seeing what it's like, you know? Um, so, um, and, um, you know, Maya Angelou, I think those would be my three, right? Yeah. Like, let's, you know, and again, it's a reflection of the here and now. Um, but, you know, to have that conversation, um, to have a conversation and just say, like, teach me, help me know, um, what's it like from, from your worldview? And, you know, my own openness and willingness to sit in open-hearted curiosity. Absolutely awesome. Yeah, that's great picks. All with something great to teach. So where can people find you? Where should they follow your stuff and get more information about this, about, about resilience now? Obviously, your book is on yeah. Amazon. Yeah, they're all out on Amazon. They are, um, I would say, you know, come to drarielschwartz.com and follow my blog because I'm always putting stuff out there and you'll find out about conferences. And um, And I am invested, this is part of my um, kind of give back to the world and community, but I am invested in sharing information freely or as low cost as possible. And so, you know, my blogs are out there. And then um, I put little videos of yoga practices. I have free embodied yoga practices up on my website. And, and if you're on Facebook, come join me at Dr. Ariel Schwartz on Facebook. It's my, I have other social media platforms, but that's my biggie. And that's the one that where I am most interactive. There you go. It's absolutely awesome. Take it from me. And I'll attach your polyvagal theory article to the either in the comments of the YouTube description of YouTube video and the uh, podcast in there where people can look at the description of that too. Cause I think that really goes into some cool, some cool stuff and we didn't have time to get to that, but you explain it very well in your, in your blog. So well, awesome. Thank well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you, Jeremy. You take care.